that's a, that's a useless box. And because you enjoyed that so much, there's actually another minute or so of that video. You'll see how futility only increases for, for the useless box. Let's go ahead and roll the rest of it. It may be a useless box, but it, it taught me something. It taught me something about the, the futility. I, I imagine the box is something like us. And it actually, they've, they've created another generation of this thing. The one you saw is, is, is even better than the one Daniel has. He, his doesn't have the robot wheels that actually can move. And it doesn't have the, have, have the display face where it actually shows expression. So that's like the upgraded model. But uh, uh, it's interesting, this thing thinks that it can go off on its own, and it becomes even destructive as it does. And uh, yet, I love that hand coming in, and it spins and spins, and, and, and the sparks fly, and yet the hand grips it, and it stopped. Something about the futility of the raging of humanity, and yet the strong hand of God, who, who withholds his power, for a time, but will not withhold it forever. That's really the thrust of, of Psalm 2. And before we go to Psalm 2, you can even begin turning there already. Psalm 2, and if you're using the Pew Bible, I believe that's page 448. But before we go there, I want to set up the question in another one of the Psalms, a Psalm where, where the psalmist describes something that we often see. It's not right, it's not fair. The way of the world, the way things happen, the way things are is just not right. Talking about, uh, the, talking about the wicked, talking about those who do not fear God, and yet they prosper. It says in Psalm 73, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. The Lord's people are easily swayed and caught up in the ways of the rebellious mockers. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. It seems, verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Then down to verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. This is not right. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. 
That's what Psalm 2 does for us. Psalm 2 gives us the big picture. Psalm 2 tells us and confronts, it questions what's happening now, and yet it shows us the end. So I want us to turn this morning to, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We're going we're gonna to go through all, 11, all 12 verses. Before we do that, I want to just ask the Lord that he would, he would open this, his word up to us. Father, Lord, my, my, my prayer this morning for me, for us, Lord, is that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, as your psalmist said so long ago, as we read one of these psalms today, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Things that we couldn't understand on our own, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit would understand. Things that we aren't sure what to do with, and yet your spirit will show us what to do. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Right now, in this place, this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it seems faithfulness is futile, doesn't it? It seems like faithfulness is futility, that we can't win against the opposing current. It's, it's, it's grown too strong. It has carried us away with it. The world is literally, and I can say this because it's a biblical word, the world is literally going to hell. We, we, we see that all around us. Uh, just just uh, things going on worldwide in the news today. Look at what's happening with ISIS. And they, they, they will go into a place and they will systematically kill people just because they are Christians. Those that they don't kill, they take as hostage. And now there's, a, there's um, up to 300 Christians being held for a ransom of a total of $30 million. The, uh, the attack at the Kenyan College just a week or so ago where 147 college students were singled out and gunned down mercilessly just because they were Christians. You can't bake a cake, sell flowers, take wedding photographs without learning that tolerance is intolerant. Another twist on this, the tech giants, the guys that are behind Facebook and Google and eBay share a, a common end that they're pursuing, pursuing in a couple of different ways, one of those being something called Calico, the California Life Company. And the goal of the California Life Company is to create, in essence, human immortality to create, in essence, unending life like eternal life, yet completely on human terms without any reference to God. That they feel if they can aggregate health and sickness information in the same way that other information is collected and aggregated and put together and applied on the Internet, that, that we can solve this whole problem of sickness and disease and death and mortality. And so they are pressing with, with, with millions and millions of dollars, pressing into this goal. I just read in, in a headline this week that, that um, somebody is ready to be the first patient uh, of a head transplant operation. Now, for, for, what does that mean? A head transplant? Well, his, his body is wasting away with a, muscle, with a muscle wasting disease, so he intends to have his head severed and placed on a donor body of somebody who is, quote, brain dead. That's the plan. It's like, where does this stop? At what point does, does medical technology cross some line? What about gene splicing? We can go in to, to, 
to, to, to a DNA string, and you can, you can change the genetics. So you can insert the genetics of a third person into the genetic stream that's created for a, for, for, for a human embryo. And so you end up correcting issues and problems with that DNA. In a sense, a designer baby. We could have, we could have babies born with three parents or more. We could have babies born with... with um, with no mother or with no father. It's supposed to be scientifically and genetically possible. But how long will the Lord of heaven allow humanity to mess with the very core of his creation? We are redefining reality on our terms. And at what point will God say, enough is enough? What do we do in these situations? How do we respond when these things come up? I mean, there's the argument, for instance, with, with gene splicing. If you can eliminate in somebody's family tree a particular terrible genetically uh, inherited disease, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that just as good as, as some other medical procedure or operation they might do? How do we respond? How do we know? Well, I'm not going to try to answer all of those biomedical, ethical problems today, but I want to give us a framework. I want to give us a framework for what is going on in the world and what we are to do in the midst of it. And that framework we find in Psalm chapter 2. I'm starting a series uh, basically called The Best Sermons Ever. (laughs) That's a bold claim, isn't it? All right, the pa- uh, maybe Easter was a good service, but pastor, I think it's gone to your head. No, no, when I say best sermons ever, I don't mean mine, okay? I'm, I'm grabbing hold of several of the prophet's sermons. And one of the, I'm, I'm doing some other research right now, some other writing right now, and the thrust of that is that the prophets were great preachers, and pastors today have a lot to learn from those prophets who were great preachers. So when I talk about best sermons ever, I'm talking about some of those great examples of the prophets' sermons that we still can learn a lot from. So basically, I'm plagiarizing for the next several weeks. It's, hopefully, it'll make studying a whole lot easier. Well, not really. But you'll think that, and you'll think, man, the pastor is just coasting because uh, he's borrowing somebody else's message. And, but um, there's, there's, there's much for us to hear from ancient voices. And um, these, the, the prophet's best sermons ever, this series, uh, I'm starting it with Psalm 2. And, and you say, well, Psalms, is that, is that from a prophet? Uh, well, I'm going to assume this morning that Psalm 2 is David. I can't prove that to you. Although I think David, certainly the psalm is, is written by one of the kings of David. And I think David himself fits the best, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, you can agree or not. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't change the thrust of the psalm. But I think assuming David in it is also going to fill out some things for us. And um, um, Psalm 2 is prophetic in what it says. Not merely because it predicts the future, because it does. But Psalm 2 is prophetic but because it, it encourages us to, to grab hold of what God has done in the past, grab hold of who God is, and also lay hold of what God has promised that he will do and wh- how those two come to bear on our present situation, our present life. That's, that's the essence of prophecy. God's past faithfulness and his future promise brought, both brought to bear into the present realities that God's people face. And it was true in the time of David. It's true today. Now, 
let me, let, me, let me describe that time of David that I'm talking about then. David has just is being anointed king. This is a coronation psalm. It's called a, a royal psalm. So understand it in the, in the essence of this is, this is a description of the context of a new king being coronated. Now, David was first anointed to be king. He would be the king after Saul, God said, when he was 12 years old. Imagine it. 12 years old, and he's anointed to be the next king of Israel. Only problem with that, it sounds like a whole lot of fun. I think a lot of 12-year-olds would love to be king. Some of them think they already are. It's the nature of middle school, right? Now, the, the problem with David being anointed as king when he's 12 is there's already somebody in the job who's not quite ready to let go of it. And so David's kingship is initially opposed and then later, even after Saul's death, now Saul, who's been battling the Philistines and others his whole life, and when he gets a break from them, then he goes chasing after David again, but he's been battling these other nations his whole life. Saul, the experienced warrior, dies. And now David, much younger and supposedly inexperienced David, comes to the throne. And all of Israel, some of them in a panic, gather around David because the Philistines are the ones who have just killed Saul. They just killed Israel's king, and they're not stopping there. They're going to keep pressing their advantage. And so Israel quickly gathers around David and wants David to be all of Israel's king. And that's a wonderful thing, except that the Philistines are coming, and they're not impressed. And not only is it the Philistines, but, the, but it's the Moabites, and it's the Edomites, and the list goes on and on. There's all kinds of enemies that Saul has made, all kinds of enemies. They're not impressed that David is the new king over Israel. But he's not merely Israel's choice of king. The difference is made for David. How can he stand up to this? Because God has made him king. God, years ago, anointed him as king, long before he realized it. And it's on the basis of God's promise that David can take this mantle. And so when you hear these words, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Read that anointed first of all in terms of David. David is the anointed of the Lord. David's God's choice and yet the nations and the peoples rage against him. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. David understands his role here in terms of God's covenant. God's covenant and God's calling. Uh, so do we today. You can take that anointed then, you can, you, can, you can take it from David to the anointed, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed. The Christ. Jesus is the anointed of the Lord the um, par excellence. He, he is the anointed, capital T, capital A. We also are anointed by the Lord. We also have, have been indwelt, if we're believers in Christ, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, in Christ we also are anointed, and we, we are also indwelled by the Spirit of the living God. And we experience, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. As they oppose him, they're going to oppose us as well. A Christian witness today is going to be opposed. We see going on in our society a strong backlash against previous times. 
and against previous worldviews, that our, our society is changing around us and is changing in a particular direction, and yet I want you to understand it in the sense of the nations raging, the peoples plotting in futility, and it is against the Lord is against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast off their cords from us. We don't want to be accountable to God. The issue is not whether or not God is. It's an interesting thing. I was in the, in the county, county councilors meeting several weeks ago when they, when they were still discussing the idea of putting in God we trust uh, in some form up on the wall there in the, in the meeting room. And there was a lot of people for that, and there was a lot of people against that. Uh, basically, kind of half and half in terms of the people making comments. But even a lot of the people making comments, again, saying that they didn't believe any God, in the midst of their explanations as to why they didn't believe in God, would reference God and talk about God and how God must be like this and not like this, and that's why they don't believe in God. And it was interesting. But what they, what, what they were concerned about more was somebody else's view of God that they didn't share and the implications of that being pressed upon them. It's not that we don't like the idea of God as long as we don't have to be accountable to God. But if God is God and he created us, then in one way or another, some force, force or fashion, if there is life beyond this life and God is the one who controls it in some way, somehow we are accountable to him. And that's where the rub comes in. Because humanity doesn't want to be accountable to God. This is nothing new. This is nothing that came up in the last 10, 20 years. This is something that came up in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said? See, postmodernism isn't new. Has God really said? Does that really mean that? Or does it mean maybe something like this instead? It can mean this to you. You could be like God's, knowing good and evil. Have it your way. And so, and so the, the, in the, over the time of the Judges, one of the reasons the book of Judges is given to us is not to tell tales about Israel. The book of Judges is given to us to tell us something about humanity. That when a man, humanity runs amok and has it their way, there's no king over Israel. Each one does what is right in their own eyes. Postmodernity modernity is not new. No. They tried it out then, and it worked horribly then as well. I'm sorry. Are you hearing that? My, my phone is chatting to me, and we really should tell it to stop. There you go. Now you know the pastor will never fuss at you about your cell phones going off in church, will he? Oh, my goodness. Okay. The... the it, the raging is against the Lord himself. There's a lot of pressure out there for Christians to be nicer. You know, less offensive. I agree, we should be less offensive. Please, use deodorant. We should be less offensive, but there's an offense that we cannot jettison. This notion that unbelievers like Jesus, it's just the church that they don't like. It's, it's, it's just the church that they take offense. That's nonsense. Because Jesus said it wasn't that way. Jesus said, because they've hated me, they will hate you. Paul says, Timothy, get, get ready and get used to it. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Now, we can get away with lots of nonsense in our country, but go to Syria, go to Iraq, and tell the Christians there, listen, brothers and sisters, come on. You need to be more like Jesus because they like Jesus. Really, ISIS likes Jesus. It's just a church they don't like. doesn't carry any water there, does it? No, we have. We have still the... the um, the latitude to, to come up with stuff like that. But, but they like Jesus as they define him, but not as he is. They want to cast off his cords, cast off his bonds. They will not let Jesus do the defining. Jesus tells us, be wise as serpents, but harmless as dove. Yeah, we dare not add any offense to the offense of the cross. And yet... The cross of Christ will be offensive. If we try too hard to not be offensive, to not give any reason for anybody to have anything against us, we may find that we're leaving the cross itself behind in the process. Humanity is in rebellion against their creator. God endures a lot, but corrupting the core of his creation how long will he stand for it? When we begin to play and when we begin to play God ourselves genetically with the capstone of God's creation, humanity made in the image of God, we redefine to our own whims for the first time in human history on official scales the essential human relationships which God himself called good. It was not good when Adam was alone. And then it was good. And then it's not good again. How long will God allow? That's my question. I don't think that long. Psalm 2 warns us that God will not endure such foolishness forever. It says in, in, in verse 4, He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's a, there's a word of finality there. God is not worried. God is not stressed. God is sovereign. God is in charge. We, we don't have to worry about the things that are going on. God is not sweating this. Now, that's easy for me to say, you know, but, but again, go to those Christians in Syria or Iraq and just, Bob, your words are ringing a little hollow here because we are sweating it. People are, people are shooting at us. People are murdering us simply because we are Christians. And yet, even as, as, as God seems to suffer for a time, and in Revelation, the saints, those who are martyred and, and whose, whose, whose spirits are before the throne will cry out, God, how long? And God still seems to allow this for some time. And yet again, these are those that God cherishes. God cherishes those who have believed in, who embrace, who have trusted themselves and their eternity to His Son whom He gave for us. God loves you. How long will He allow those whom He loves to be crushed? It says not long. He will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. That is what's coming. He says, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. God's king is not up for popular vote. It doesn't work that way. As much as our American mindsets think that it does, it does not. God's king is God's king's. And there's a hill outside Jerusalem that has been made holy by the blood of God's king, Jesus who though he was king, though he was God, he considered not his equality with God a thing to be clung on to, but he emptied himself. 
and humbled himself in the form of humanity and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. And there, that hill outside Jerusalem is a holy hill. It was made holy because the blood of God's own Son was poured out there for you and for me, that we might escape, that we might be rescued, that we might have refuge from the wrath that has to come on all of humanity. See, God's glory demands it. God's glory can be defined as God's, is His intrinsic eternal perfections. Intrinsic, I mean, this is what is essential in God. You can't add to it, you don't take away from it. Just like gold, pure gold has an intrinsic value all of its own. You don't have to make it into anything before it's valuable. Plastic isn't so valuable of itself. It doesn't have a lot of intrinsic value. Now, you might be able to make something useless, like a useless box, and actually sell them for $35, $40. You can make something useless out of plastic, and yet you can sell it for a lot of money. But it wasn't valuable in itself, but gold has an intrinsic value. God's glory is intrinsic to him. It's part of who he is. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. God's glories are eternal. They're unchanging. What God was, God is, God always will be. I am the Lord. I change not, he says. And his glory is his perfections. He is perfect in love. He is perfect in long-suffering. And yet God is perfect in justice as well. And his justice cannot forever wait against rebellion. Just because God is love does not mean that his justice must not run its course. Otherwise, his justice would not be perfect. You see? His justice is perfect. Now, for all of our rebellion that is covered by the Son because we have trusted in Him and accepted God's, God's gift on our behalf, accepted His forgiveness on the basis of Christ, that is covered, that is done, that is dealt with, it is paid. But for all the rebellion that continues and will not seek rest, how long will God? Okay, God loves His creation. God loves His redeemed. How much more did God love His own Son? How much more will he sooner or later spill his wrath against those who have rejected and continue to reject, obstinate in their rejection of the son who loved them and gave himself for them? We need, we need to see the opposition around us for what it really is. But not only that, we need to make time to focus. What, what, what strengthens David here? What strengthened the son on the cross so that he could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew who his father was. He knew, on the human level, he knew what his father, God, had promised. That he would raise him from the dead. And so he could willingly pour out his life even to death. Because he knew what God had promised he would do. See, Jesus lived even more perfectly the faith of Abraham when Abraham believed that God, to keep his promise, would even raise his son Isaac from the dead, although it didn't come to that. But God held nothing back when it came to his own son. And yet his own son had all confidence that though he bore the sin of the world upon himself, still, God would raise him from the dead. Now, he could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We are encouraged. Courage is poured into us for the call of God upon our lives, for us to continue faithful to our God in the midst of an oppositional world, 
to even declare at the point of a gun, yes, I believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died for me. He died for you. I'm willing to die for that because I can never die. The one who believes in me, Jesus said, will never die. Do you believe this? We'll not believe it if we don't know it. We'll not believe it if we don't feed our souls, if we don't make time to focus on who God is. In the morning, when you get up, read God's book before Facebook. In the morning, when you got up, feed your soul, fill your soul with good news before the morning news. We need to remind ourselves of who God is and what He has done for us to strengthen ourselves in the midst of a world that is in subtle ways and obvious ways, against him. When you see the opposition for who, he, who it is, we need to focus, take time to focus, take time to see God for who he really is. We need to believe that God will do what he says. Look at verse 7. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me. These are David's words about his own situation in God. These are the words of Christ. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul quotes that, he says that, that, that begotten refers to when God raised him from the dead. Or in the kingship, in the, king, in the coronation ceremony, that he was begotten as God's son when he's coronated as the king over God's people. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That, that, that phrase is quoted three times in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, reminding the church to be bold, be strong. In the midst of a compromising environment, the church of Thyatira, they have, they have held on, and their present works are, 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 are more than they were at first, and yet keep going because he, he says, you are in a compromising environment. Jezebel is tempting believers to, to give in to immorality. Some Jezebel or a spirit of Jezebel in the age is, is tempting believers to, to compromise spiritually for the gain of prosperity. He says, but hold fast and you will share in this rule of the one who will rule with a rod of iron, with absolute authority. And when he comes in Revelation 19, the same phrase is used again. He will come in judgment upon the earth. God will do what he said he's going to do. David, as king, he could, he could stand against opposition because he believed God would do what God said he was going to do. Why does David go against Goliath? Not because David's brave. Not because David's a skilled fighter. He was still a young lad at the time. He's a teenager. Not, that, not because David is, is simply this great example of courage that we need to be more like David. David simply believed God's promise that if the people of Israel trusted their God, God would cause their enemies to flee before them. If that was the case, if God had given them this land, as long as they were to simply trust in God's promise, then David was ready to step forward in what God had said that they could do because of the Lord their God. So David's confidence is in the covenant keeping of his God, not in his own ability to slay the giant. But the giant falls by a rock from a sling. Because God is God. What has God said to you? What has God said about who you are in Christ, fully accepted in the beloved? Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 
heirs of glory, that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, completely forgiven, completely accepted in Christ. What? Sealed, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, whom we already have as the first fruit. What has God said concerning you? You see why we need to make time? We need to make time to not only feed our souls on who God is, we need to make time to feed our souls on what God has said about us because that's where we'll stand in the midst of an age that is against us. It's, it's not just new that it's against us. It's been against us all the way from the beginning, but sometimes it's much more subtle. Sometimes it breaks out into open rage. But whether it's subtle or whether it's rage, it's against us and we'll stand only as we look to the Lord our God. Often we read for what to do. What am I supposed to do? What does the Bible tell me to do? But before you read for what to do, read the Word of God for who you are in Him. Recently I gave a young man, um, we're, 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 we're reading together in, the, in God's Word. I said, let's start in the book of Ephesians. I did that purposely because the book of Ephesians is going to tell him some things to do. But long before it tells him anything to do, it spends the first couple of chapters telling him who he is in Christ. And who we are in Christ comes before anything that we might look to do. Make time to feed your soul on who God is and who God has said you are in Christ. It makes all the difference. I remember well uh, John Wesley's words, never consider yourself apart from Jesus Christ. And then... In that identity, we join in what God is doing. Now, therefore, O kings, verse 10, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's interesting, Psalm 2 is not a threat. God has not given us this psalm second in the book, second in the opening psalms of worship given to God's people then and now. Number two is not given as a threat from God. You better fall in line. It's given as an invitation. In the midst of the realities of humanity, Psalm 2 is an invitation, not a threat. God invites even those who rage against him to come to him. In fear, trembling, and yet with joy to serve him. He says, kiss the son, worshipful obedience, falling down on our knees before him who is king of kings and lord of lords. As Thomas, when he realizes who Jesus is, he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. Because of who you are, God invites through the one they raged against. See, the psalmist is the one issuing God's invitation. We are the ones to carry the invitation to the very ones who rage against him, who raged against us. What's our response? To defend ourselves? No. To, to, to defend the status quo? No. We don't want to. You know, this is kind of related, kind of not. I was talking with Yoel Ben David. He stayed at our house um, the evening before he spoke here at the church, uh, our guest from Jews for Jesus a couple weeks ago. I asked him, tell me, tell me, are, is, is there a move? I hear these things. You hear weird things in American evangelicalism. I said, I hear these things that there is a movement in Israel to rebuild the temple. 
I said, is that true? Is there a, is, is there a lot of, does that, is that a hot topic in Israel today? He said, no, not so much. No. The topics in Israel today are a lot like the topics, topics in America, uh, jobs and security and, and so forth, various issues of the day. But building the temple is not one of them. In fact, he said, the, uh, the place where you might expect that to be the strongest among the Orthodox practicing Judaism, they are not at all interested in the rebuilding of a temple, for the most part, the majority of them. And the reason is, is all of their Orthodox Judaism is built up on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition without a temple. If you went back to having a temple, that would throw out all of the traditions that they have been practicing for centuries. And if you know anything about Orthodox Judaism, it's all built on tradition. What would they ever do with a temple? They haven't got a clue. They're not wanting to build a temple. The few that are wanting to build a temple are some, some, a very small fringe of the Orthodox Jewish community and a smaller fringe within the evangelical Christian community. Oftentimes, the Christians from the West, uh, Joel Ben David asked me the question, he said, I don't know why they want to build the temple for Antichrist to be worshipped in. I'm not sure why they want to do that, but that's what some, a few, are pushing an agenda for. You see, oftentimes we can push an agenda in a society that is actually contrary to God's plan. His son will be worshipped on his holy hill of Zion. Yes, he will. But oftentimes we push for a status quo within our own society that is actually a morality without godliness. It's a godless, agreed, compromised morality. We'll all agree to be good together and we think we can be good on our own. And it'll never work. So our, our, our role is not to, not to impose some kind of godless morality and stability and status quo for society that somehow we can get along. No, our, our role is in the reality of what God is doing to join in God's purpose in extending his invitation. His invitation is be warned be wise, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, worship the Son. Uh, Confess, pledge, allegiance, worshipful obeisance to him. That's the invitation here. It's, it's, it's extended through David, the David they rail against. It's extended through Jesus, the Jesus whom they crucified. That invitation is extended through us in the midst of being mistreated, laughed at, mocked. We extend an invitation. The essence of life is to serve God in worshipful, yielding, and trusting obedience. I've joined into something that uh, there's a group that's meeting about once a month or so at Western Seminary, and they invited, I'm not sure how I got on the list, I guess it was a junk email list or something, and they asked me if I wanted to participate in this. And, and it's basically, it's a, it's a gathering of, of people to talk about what does the, the um, Christian life look like in the workaday world taking church from Sunday into Monday. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like something I would, I would like to be much better at helping our church how to do. So I, so I joined in on that basis. And, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the thrust of that is intentional, not incidental. That we need to intentionally look at the situations that we find ourselves in all through the work and how do we think about this theologically? How do we relate to this in light of what we know and believe about God? 
our growth group this morning after the service. So some of you were wondering, you, you didn't get the word. Is that starting today? Yes, it's starting today. Well, I've already got something up. You can run home and get it. We'll, we will probably pray, begin eating at 12.15. So there's time. You can rush really quickly. If you didn't bring food, it's too far to go home, don't worry. We, I actually have some, well, Julie's done some baking, but also I, I even pulled out some hot dogs and buns out of the freezer. We will make a plan. That's, that, that's okay. But one of the things we're going to do in that growth group is for, for these next several weeks, we're just going to press into what does this look like in life? What do I do with this? So this is your chance to ask me questions. I didn't understand this or that or that about what you were saying or about what the text says. That's great. Well, ask those questions. If you don't have questions for me, I've got questions for you that are related to how do we step into this? What is it? What opposition do you face that you fret, that you worry about? What intimidates you? What could you say when this happens in a setting at work or, or, or school or in a neighborhood? We need to press into this in life, this worshipful yielding and trusting obedience to God in the rhythms of daily life. We need to, in all means, wise as serpents but harmless as doves, without any offense that we can avoid, we need to extend that invitation for blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Blessed are... See how the psalm closes? The psalm opens with the futility of man. The psalm closes with blessed. That's the opposite of futility, by the way. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, Lord, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Blessed is he whose God is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed are those, Paul says in Romans 4, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The nations will rage you will find that all the world is against you. But God is for you. Our Lord is for you. He laid down his life for us. How will he not in Christ Jesus freely give us all things? It's not an easy road. The old song says that we're traveling to glory, but we're not traveling alone. God is still God. The Son sits at his right hand, interceding for us and soon coming. All that's wrong will be made right. In the meantime, we extend an invitation. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the trouble of life around us, in the midst of the futility of humanity, in the midst of the futility of our of, of our own mortality, we cannot even save ourselves, God. We find that our strength diminishes and fails, and yet, Father, you have given us a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. That foundation is your Son. It's on his finished work that we stand ourselves, and it's his finished work that we extend to those around us. Lord, in the midst of opposition, even though people would seem that they don't want to hear it, 
Lord, would you by your spirit use us the same way that you use somebody else to tell me? Would you use me to tell somebody now? Father, the same way that I didn't want to believe, but your spirit opened my eyes so that I could see the wonderful things of your son. Lord, would you, through us, by your spirit, open the eyes of those that we care about or simply the ones that we might hardly know and yet you set in our way on our path. Father, would you give us by your spirit the insight into how we can respond to the opposition Realize the futile rage, the fear of being accountable to God. And yet that accountability has been covered because of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen.